0: I'm Dr. Doris Forte and welcome to the Visionarium podcast where ordinary people gain extraordinary vision. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And if you've been here before, welcome back. This is episode 40. This is a tribute to National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Thank you for listening. Every October, organizations around the country promote National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. The purpose of Domestic Violence Awareness Month is to mourn those who lost their lives to abuse, celebrate survivors, network for change, and to bring attention to life-saving resources for people who have experienced abuse from family members and intimate partners. Harris County Domestic Violence Community Council is a nonprofit that works to increase access to services and safety for survivors of domestic violence, hold batterers accountable, and prevent domestic violence-related homicides. This is the month of November. Even though October is set aside as Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the Visionarium podcast believes that domestic violence is such a big topic, such an important social issue, that It should be discussed all year. So today, we are privileged and honored and grateful to have as our co-host and guest, Thisha Jenkins, who is the training director for Harris County Domestic Violence Coordinating Council. Let me tell you a little bit about Thisha. Thisha has been developing curricula and training professionals in law enforcement, healthcare, care, education, and social services on the topics of domestic violence and sexual violence, emotional intelligence, and trauma-informed response for over 25 years. She is an expert in domestic violence and has spoken in Trinidad and Tobago and in West Africa and Accra, Ghana. Providing training to law enforcement and social service providers. So it is with a great deal of appreciation and honor to introduce our guest today, Tisha Jenkins. Hi, Tisha. Hi, Dr. Forte. It's so good to see you again. It's been a it's been a minute, as you say. Yes, it has been a minute. <laughs> Can we start off with having you just tell us a little bit about the services that you do provide for Harris County? domestic violence community council.
1: And I know that that's a mouthful. (laughs) All right. So yes, uh, as the training director with the Harris County Domestic Violence Coordinating Council, I provide training and technical assistance within the community, focusing on those who are in various systems, because that's the whole idea behind a coordinated community response is working with systems to address the issue of domestic violence. So I work with law enforcement, other criminal justice professionals, judges, educators, K through 12, post secondary, healthcare providers on helping them to be able to recognize, respond, and refer survivors of domestic violence.
0: It's a big job. So in simple terms, because there's really nothing simple about it, but What is domestic violence?
1: Probably the most basic way that I can describe domestic violence is in a relationship where one person seeks to gain power and control over the other person through physical, verbal, emotional, and even spiritual
0: abuse. Many people that I have talked to and worked with who are surviving domestic violence didn't even realize that that was their predicament. So describe for us, what are some of the offenses that occur that can be categorized as domestic violence?
1: Excellent question, Dr. Corte, because what I have found now going on 28 years of doing this work is that many times people have no idea they're in an abusive relationship because they've never been hit, slapped, kicked, or punched. And that's what we usually think of as domestic violence is that physical piece. However, There is a tool that we use called the power and control wheel. I won't go through all of the tactics. I'll share, though, about two or three just to help people to recognize what is considered abuse in a relationship. And one of those definitely is verbal and emotional abuse. That in a relationship where your partner consistently berates you, saying things such as, you're stupid, why are you going back to school, you're never going to be a nurse anyway." they'll never hire you. You talk funny. You know, you've got that accent. Who's going to hire you? you? You don't even speak good English. That is a form of abuse in a relationship because what that does, it disempowers an individual because they're constantly second guessing themselves. And they even find themselves saying, you know, I know this may not be the best relationship, but who else is going to want me? I'm not, I don't look good. Who else is going to want me? I'm too old. How am I going to take care of myself because I'm not smart enough to get a job? Another form of of abusive relationships is isolation. where You are taken away from family and friends and you don't have that support system. You know, time and again, I've heard women and men share, well, my partner moved us from Louisiana to Texas. And as a result of moving here, I have no one to help me. I depended on my family to help me because we have a child with a disability. And now I feel as though I am trapped because I don't have a car. Not having a car is a form of isolation economic abuse, which is huge. What we know is about 99% of all survivors of domestic violence experience economic abuse. And what that may look like is that even though a person may be a nurse, an educator, and they're making anywhere from 70 dollars to $200,000 a year, the reality is they may only see 10 dollars to $20,000 a year of that money. Why? Because their partner has them to direct deposit their check into their account and they don't have access to the account number, the PIN, and they literally get an allowance. And I like to make sure that I share that because I think as a society, we tend to believe this only happens to those who are in poverty. There are individuals out there who are well-educated, have great earning potential. However, they're still in an abusive relationship because they have no access to the financial resources. So those are some of the things that are happening in a relationship that are abusive.
0: Thank you for that very comprehensive answer. I can also add to that, it has a lot to do with how a person's default setting is. If they grew up in abuse, that's their norm, and it may not look unusual to them to be mistreated that way. Also, there are cycles in these abusive relationships that occur over and over and over, and it takes a person a while to recognize that this is something that's going on and on and on. So what are the cycles of abuse?
1: Well, when we talk about the cycles of abuse, it's that that beginning stage where those things we talk about in that power and control wheel, where the person is basically walking on eggshells, the survivor is walking on eggshells, that they're afraid of how they prepared the dinner. They're maybe even afraid to say no to intimacy. It's that constant waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then moving into that part of the relationship where it does become physically violent and also can include sexual violence. And then we move into that honeymoon where the person is telling them, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never say that again. I'll never do that again. And that cycle continues on and on until there's an intervention. And you said something key about it's not in all, but we do find it in most cases is that it is a learned behavior for both the survivor as well as the person who is causing the harm. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest issues that people often ask about domestic violence is why don't they leave? And specifically, why doesn't she leave? And something that I have been doing a little bit more study on and helping the community to recognize what is going on is using the stages of change. And it's so key when you said that for some people, this may be normal behavior. When we talk about the five stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance, and that pre-contemplation is when a person has no idea that anything is wrong. And if I've lived in an abusive environment where people call each other names, where maybe I know that my mother or my father didn't have access to the money, that they had no voice in that relationship, then If you're telling me, I think you're being abused or I think your relationship is unhealthy, in that pre-contemplation stage, the person is thinking, no, that's just how families work. And so why would I leave a relationship if I think that's just how families work? Mm
0: -hmm. So as a domestic violence expert, who are you actually interfacing with? Are you interfacing with victims or the judicial system, educating people and pointing out to them what domestic violence looks like? What is your job as an expert?
1: I consider my job as an expert is that I show up on a continuum. It is as simple as someone sending me a message on my Facebook. And I get a lot of those just saying, hey, you know where the local shelters are? What's that 1-800 number to the hotline again? Can you help me with my friend? We're in the process of safety planning. So it's just being there for people when they want to reach out. The other part of that expertise is developing programs, increasing my level of knowledge so that I can do training with judges, so that I can do training with law enforcement, and helping them to see the connection as to why that survivor in a court of justice may recant or not even show up to court right? That they realize it's not because she or he doesn't want to participate in the justice system. They recognize that person is recanting because possibly the abuser has maybe gotten one of their family members to call and say that if you follow through on this, we're going to get a really good attorney and we're going to make sure that you never see your children again. We're going to get full custody. And so, of course, she or he does not show up to court. So I help professionals to recognize why someone may recant, why they may not even report, and why they may not even follow through with the referrals that are provided.
0: Very good. Now, we know that a population is only as healthy as the people who live in it. How does domestic violence affect individual and community health?
1: That's huge. That is so huge, Dr. Forte. It affects community health, and this is based on work around what I know of as adverse childhood experience. This was a study that was done over a 10-year period with about 17,000 individuals that looked at how trauma has long-term effects on individuals who have had a traumatic event occur before the age of 18. One of those traumatic events is witnessing domestic violence. And so what we know is that the long term, when it comes to health, is that a person who has had up to four traumatic events that they have witnessed before the age of 18 can lead to approximately a 25-year loss of life. We know that the expected lifespan of most individuals is 70 years old. So what we're talking about is a person, if I got my math correct, potentially a person could leave this world at 45 due to the trauma endured before the age of 18. And you say, well, what does that have to do with domestic violence? And what does that have to do with health? Well, what we know is that trauma can impact the immune system. So chronic illnesses such as diabetes, cancer, all of these can be one of the indicators of previous trauma in a person's life. When a person has witnessed trauma, they are more likely to engage in activities such as drug and alcohol abuse. The physical effect is what? Having issues with your liver. You may be involved in an accident as a result of drinking while driving. And again, there is study from a 10-year study that links that back to trauma before the age of 18. So we can see that, yes, witnessing domestic violence can have a long-term effect on community health. There's also been some studies done around children who go into schools and they're bullying and also the mass shootings that we're seeing, that there is linkage back to violence in the home. So again, community health and safety.
0: When we survive these traumatic situations, but have not completely healed from them, the energy from those trauma bonds still affect us as free-floating anxiety. Exposure to violence and abuse has been also associated with death and severe mental health issues. Do you know the statistics about domestic violence in the Houston area?
1: There was a study done with UTMB in collaboration with HCVBCC, where they interviewed women who were in abusive relationships and also looking at the impact of COVID. Well over 50% of the women shared about depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation as a direct result of being in the abusive relationship and then also exacerbated by COVID.
0: And what are the statistics on men who are victims of domestic violence? The most recent statistics I've seen
1: uh, from Texas Council on Family Violence is one in four women and one in seven men.
0: So what are some of the ways that HCDVCC, am I saying it right? Right. Yes, (laughs) has evolved to respond to public or community health issues surrounding domestic violence in the Houston area.
1: Well, you know, we have some amazing leaders, our executive director, Barbie Brashear, and our senior communications director, Amy Smith, who actually were the first paid employees of HCDVCC for five years, and now they just celebrated 12 years, and they have spent this entire 12 years doing focus groups, convening task force to respond to issues around domestic violence in Houston and surrounding Harris County. And two initiatives that come up for me. Number one is when I joined the council in 2015. As a direct result of doing work with the Harris County Sheriff's Office, they piloted the program to have victim advocates out of the sheriff's office. The Houston Police Department has had victim advocates that specialize in domestic violence, up to that point, and not been with the uh, sheriff's office. So myself and two other colleagues were brought on by Barbie and Amy to pilot a victim advocate project. Uh, as a result of that, I now believe that the sheriff's office has, I think, seven or eight uh, victim advocates. And the importance of this is that so many times what we know is that there is not an arrest when law enforcement is called out. And it's not because law enforcement doesn't care. It is because the incident does not meet the criteria for an arrest at that time. So what happens is that that case is referred for additional investigation. And so those cases then go to the family violence unit. And what the victim advocates do is that they go through those reports and then they will then do an outreach to that survivor, knowing that there wasn't an arrest made. But they may call that person and say, hi, Ms. Doe, or hi, Mr. Doe, we see that there was a call to your residents for domestic violence. And we just want to let you know that we're with the Harris County Sheriff's Office. I'm a victim advocate, and I want to call and see how can we support you. Some of those things that may happen is that giving that complainant for 1-800-799-SAFE, which is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, it may be letting them know about the local crisis centers. You would be amazed how many people still do not know even about the Houston Area Women's Center. So again, that fits our goal of increasing access to services and safety. It may be letting them know about crime victims' compensation. So that is one of the initiatives that the HCBC has done. And then in the fall of 2019, prior to COVID coming on, we had a guest speaker from Texas Council on Family Violence who came and shared that based on focus groups and research that they had done, is that there was a 75% percent turn rate from shelters when an individual did finally reach out for help because there was no space available. And yes, we have some amazing services here in Houston and Harris County. However, we have only a little over 300 dedicated beds for survivors of domestic violence. And so the council's response has been that we began to work and coordinate with all the local shelters to provide what we call rapid rehousing. And up to date, we been able to provide safe, sustainable housing for about approximately a little over 300 families who are fleeing an abusive relationship so that those families can be safe and have a place to call home. So those are just two of the initiatives among many that HCVC is doing. And again, we're not doing it alone. We do it with the work of our amazing community partners.
0: I feel your passion, Tisha. I feel it. When I met you, I think it was in 2007. One of the things that I'll always remember about you is our conversation about House Bill 121. Yes. That had to do with teen dating abuse in the state of Texas. But what I didn't know was at the same time, every state in the United States had passed the House Bill. So education is really key to ending this cycle of abuse. So does your agency also work with schools?
1: Yes, we do. Uh, as I stated earlier, one of the areas that I provide training to is to educators. And I actually oversee our Title IX committee. And I work with individuals in higher education, and we're working to engage our K-12 through partners as well. And we also just recently got a grant through Allstate to do a curriculum called Expect Respect. And so we brought on a new person to my department. That person is actually coordinating with schools as we speak getting ready to develop this support groups, the curriculum called Expect Respect. And for 24 weeks, our facilitator will be going in to provide education to students in middle school and high school around topics such as conflict resolution, self-esteem, self-confidence, gender socialization. And all of these are to create basically social emotional tools to help prevent violence in their future relationship.
0: Outstanding. Houston is one of the most diverse multicultural cities in the world. We know that violence disproportionately affects vulnerable populations of people, such as women, children, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender questioning, people who live in poverty, among others. What are some of the cultural challenges that are being addressed by your organization such as language barriers or immigration issues?
1: We have been partnering, I believe now for about four years with the Ujima Project out of Washington, D.C. The Ujima Project is specifically geared towards providing domestic violence services in the African-American community. And just actually recently did A panel discussion with them last week. And so we are looking at the help-seeking behaviors of African-American women. I actually, in the summer of 2019, went to several health clinics and set up a pop-up shop, if you will, and had conversations with the women who were in those clinics, predominantly in African-American communities. And it was very telling uh, about the distrust with our legal system, about the fact that From a cultural standpoint, what happens in this house stays in this house. And those are being some of the reasons not wanting to send another man back into the system. So those are, you know, conversations we're having and really wanting to increase the level of trust with systems such as law enforcement so that we can hold batters accountable because here is the reality. You're not sending another man. You're not sending another black man back to jail. It is that person's behavior. And that even feeds into when we're talking about the tactics that abusers use for power and control is that verbal and emotional abuse saying, well, you don't support me and it's your fault that I went to jail. And really making that clear, and not just in the African-American community, but across the continuum, that you are not responsible for that person's choice to use violence. However, yes, having those conversations specifically within the Black community I also had the opportunity last week to be interviewed by a young lady, Sadaf Patel, who is with Anissa Hope Center. And they are a culturally specific organization in Houston that is providing services to the Muslim community. And had an excellent conversation via Facebook, the engagement. And so again, we're in that space partnering with Anissa Hope Center to collaborate and to provide training and technical assistance and to do that engagement of the Muslim community. Because we realize that domestic violence unfortunately does not discriminate.
0: Thank you so much for everything that you have shared with us today. For educating us and making us aware, more aware about what domestic violence is and its effects on our life and our health and well being. Before we close, is there anything that you would like to share that I didn't ask you about or any questions that you want to answer that I didn't have the wherewithal to ask you?
1: So here's the thing this is such a broad topic. I think I just want to close with this. Monday, was October 31st, and it ended, quote, unquote, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. However, here's the reality. On the eve of November 1st, here in Houston, a woman's partner was shot by her adult son. Why? Because she was trying to get away from the abuser, and her son came to her rescue. So the violence continued, and it will continue. We started the conversation in October, and for those who are listening, I simply want to encourage you to keep the conversation going, 365-24-7, because what we know statistically is that three women every single day in this country are killed by an intimate partner. So in the month of October, there were at least at minimum approximately 93 women who lost their lives at the hands of someone who said, I love you. We have to keep the conversation going. So as you tune in to this podcast, take this information and go start the conversation with someone. Get actively involved. Support your local crisis center. No, it doesn't mean you got to go and work on the hotline. You actually got to work with clients. It could be supporting them financially. It could be serving on the board. It could simply be liking them on social media and sharing their messages. It's that simple. So that's what I want to leave people with.
0: And we gratefully receive that. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Wow, that was exhilarating. I am so glad that Thisha Jenkins was available and willing to be part of our program today, and I'm glad that you were too. Thank you for listening to the Visionarium podcast today, and always. I will be back next week with a new episode, and the topic will probably be something centered around an attitude of gratitude. The month of November makes me think about Thanksgiving and gratitude and that sort of thing. So that's what I'm thinking today. Before I go, I want to leave you with the phone number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline, in case you need that. It is 800. 800- Seven nine nine seven seven two three. Again, it's 800 SAFE. And SAFE is 7723. So that's 1 800 And if you need to get in contact with me, my email address is The Visionarium Podcast at gmail.com. So until we meet again, remember, to focus on your dreams, because you've got to have a dream to make a dream come true. See you soon.